feel like uh, Dean Martin sitting on the sofa here, like expecting the rest of the Rat Pack to stroll in any second. Is that? I hope that's T in there. Uh, it is. Okay. <laughs> is that the full Dean Martin? No, if it was Dean, it would be you know, Cuvassier. I heard. I actually heard that he uh, he he wasn't much of a drinker, and they used to just put food coloring in the. Uh, Really? Yeah, that he was like a very sort of like straight family man. How interesting. Just played it up for yeah, the yeah, performance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hmm. that he might have been, of all of the rap hackers, he might have been the most, the best the put together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why have you scaled back the performances? Well, as you know, the music business was, I mean, a lot of musicians, not the music business, yeah. but a lot of musicians were, their careers were kind of decimated by people stealing music. Hmm. And, when that started to happen. And also, um, you know, I, I, I moved out to Los Angeles to pursue uh, writing. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit tired of the music business. I mean, the, the corporate part of the music business, I did not have a great time. We didn't get along very well, let's put it that way. And um, as much as I love L.A., I don't have a lot of musician friends in L.A. And the core of my musical history is here mm. in New York City. So... I know an incredible bevy of musicians here that are just phenomenal. Um, and so I'm, I'm working more in video and writing in L.A., but occasionally I really, really miss performing, and I've been writing songs recently, and I just wanted to come back and do a show. It's really not a career for me. I do this out of love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I mean, to have a career now is just... I wouldn't even know how to go about it, quite honestly. I mean... Unless you build a really strong live following, how does a musician or a performer make money these days? Is there is there a certain barrier that you have to hit in order to do sort of in order to do live performance? You can't just kind of get out there and play play music in front of people. That I mean, I I guess I I have more of a theatrical bent when I perform, and I yeah. like to perform with a very rich sound. Yeah, and, and you've, um, got, you've got a lot. Yeah. You've stacked the decks for this show. Oh on yeah, Sunday. I mean, I'm so excited yeah. to play with these people. It, like Bet Sussman, for instance, she was Bet Midler's MD mm. and Whitney Houston's MD for a <laughs> while, and she. I met Bet when I was signed to Geffen Records back in like '81 or '82. Yeah. So we go way back. Um, Gail Ann Dorsey and I go back to the early 80s as well. And uh, Barbara Merjan, she plays in the pit in, on Broadway, a phenomenal drummer. And Ava Mendoza, is um, she's kind of an art guitar star. You uh-huh. know? She, she does a lot of the uh, more art noise types of performances. She's in that world, but, I mean, she's an incredibly flexible player. She can play any genre, and she's very, very talented. So it's going to be... An interesting mix, and none of them have played together before. Hmm. So, Wait, not, have you have you done rehearsals, or you just well, throw, of course. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't just throw a bunch of people on no. stage and see what happens. <laughs> no, because that would I'm, also be interesting. Well, that that I would need to spike my teeth for. Yeah, no, but um, yeah, we're rehearsing, of course. But yeah. I'm I'm just so excited to. We haven't had a full band yeah. rehearsal yet, so it's going to be really fun. To, it's to interesting because I mean, you seem to be approaching it from just having a single performance as a self-contained thing versus, you know, the, the, the more standard process of getting these people together and then making some music that you can tour on and, you know, do a bunch of shows, potentially record something, but you're really just thinking of music right now as just a one-off 
live experience? I think I think about music as joy, you know. I really do. I mean, I think that if I, if I were to think of it as career or business, yeah. I would be so stressed out. Cuz I mean, obviously <laughs> you've been through that. I've been through it. Yeah. I, and I'm not not, you know, not to say, listen, if someone comes up to me after the show and says, "You guys, we want to put you on tour and we're going to give you so much money." I'm not going to say no. If somebody will do the heavy lifting for you, yes, you'll be exactly. okay with it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I don't have a manager yeah. and I'm doing the I'm really doing this on my own steam and with the help of my beloved friends, really. So, um but and and also, you know, ageism does exist in the music business. I mean, if you look at the all the major and indie record companies, they don't want to sign you if you're over like 25, yeah. you know, they want to sign embryos. So, it, it's interesting though, the, the flip side of that um is a reissue. I mean, there's there's always a lot of interest around that. If you can kind of get the the right people together to put a career retrospective. I mean, I've noticed that a lot of the things under your name are not particularly easy to find through That's Spotify. True. You know, I mean, That's true, yeah. There is some potential for things to kind of fall in line. We had um, uh, Vivian Goldman on the show. Oh, she's wonderful. And she... Great writer. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and, and put out a bunch of singles between 79 and 82. Mm-hmm. Um, and by happenstance, somebody put out a retrospective and all of a sudden everybody everybody is super interested in music yeah, again. Yeah, that's great. So, there, I mean, there is a possibility for something like that. There's a possibility, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just couldn't really take on the admin of that sure. because it would just be too overwhelming with everything else that I'm doing right now. But I'm kind of open for whatever might happen. I'm, I, we're doing this in the spirit of love for the music yeah. and for each other and... If something were to occur that uh, brought it to another level, <laughs> yeah. you know, we'll 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 see. You know, I'm open for anything, really. Did Did you consciously leave music? I did. Yeah, I did. I left in about I think it was '93. I moved to Los Angeles, and I had had too many experiences. You know, it's it's interesting because we're in a very open time now in terms of in terms of LGBTQ mm-hmm. rights and. As a gay woman in the 80s, doing music in the 80s, I mean, in in retrospect, you have to remember that Ellen DeGeneres didn't even come out of the closet until the mid-90s. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure from the record companies not to be authentic. Don't be who you are. Hmm. Be in the closet. Femme up. Do this. Do that. Because and you have to be not only a sex symbol but a sex symbol for heterosexual men is that well yes yeah. in part yeah, yeah yeah and and you know not that the business was was too uh too phobic about it um but i did have to change certain l- lyrics to songs from mm. from she to he and yeah. um and uh there were other instances where i was working with other gay artists um and they were being pressured to stay in the closet and you know, it's just a little too much. Um, it's very hard for me not to be my authentic self, you know. And uh, and also, um, you know, the business, they're, they're, they kind of want to be like your rich mommy and daddy, you know. Hmm. Like, we should be really, really happy that they're giving us the chance to do this. Yeah. But then they turn around and they steal every penny that you make. I mean, I've had that experience, too, you know, where... Um, you know, technically, if you if you don't have the money to pay for audits, which costs which anywhere from five to ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars, if you can't slap that down for an auditor, you're never going to get paid. So you know, there, 
all of that compounded, uh, it just made me think, you know, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. You made that transition from, you know, you, you, you moved out here from the Midwest. You know, you were in, involved in that kind of that downtown scene. And then, but you did at some point make a make the transition into major label you know records did, and you were putting out singles i mean mm-hmm. was there a time when it felt like you were going to be a, a superstar oh what a what a funny question yeah well you know it's interesting i mean when i was signed to geffen i was writing songs with the bass player in the bloods which was my all-girl band and we were all pretty much out of the closet so of course no one wanted to touch us with a 10-foot pole when it came to the business but after the band broke up the bass player and I got along musically really well and we were doing very funky very uh, uh, poppy funk music and we did these demos Geffen Records uh, the A&R man absolutely loved the demos and then he signed me as a solo artist, but as soon as he signed me, he separated me from my songwriting partner because we were both gay and he wanted me to present a different image. So, of course, what they loved, they took away from me. Yeah. And um, and then I was able to work with Tom Dolby, which was wonderful. Tom and I got along really well. But again, the A&R man took the tapes and remixed them without Tom's without Tom knowing anything about it. Yeah. So you don't really do that to somebody's work. You know, Tom had uh, done this great production, and then it was taken away from him and mixed by a a DJ here in New York who did a great job, but, you know, you talk to the producer before you... Anyway, it caused a rift with Tom, so Tom wouldn't do my album, not because of me, but because of the The label. label. I mean, these are are the kind of, you know... Machiavellian machinations that these guys would get into that wrecked everything. And I'm not saying I, I was an angel at that time either. I mean, you know, I, uh, I I couldn't really find a manager. I was kind of, you know, doing my own Dean Martin, <laughs> if Dean Martin was really Dean Martin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you know, it was, it was a really hard time to, na- it was almost impossible for me to navigate that world were you self-destructive is that what you're hinting at uh well i think it was a combination of yes i think that when you're oppressed or you know when people are not allowing you to be who you are when they're taking away the things that you love and wanting you to be something else um it there, there's a little bit of self-hating that starts to come in, you know, and you, and 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 uh, I think I I internalized some of that and did become kind of self-destructive. And and were, were you when when you look back on it, were you sabotaging your career in the process? Well, sabotage kind of indicates that you're doing it alone. Mm. The people that I was working <laughs> sure, with, you're, you're having you know help what I mean? Sabotage. Yes, yes, <laughs> self-sabotage. Yeah. You know, yeah. indicates that you're doing. No, there was plenty of people. Sure who thought that they were doing the best for me to make me a star. What they were actually doing was stripping everything that made me, you know, who I was and who, you know, the unique person that I was. So that was very unfortunate, I thought. And I internalized that and, you know, it just became cyclical and uh, 
kind of imploded. If you were able to, to achieve a, a certain level of success, like let, let's pretend for a second that in all of their infinite wisdom that these, these record companies and these producers were really doing you a service as far as making you a, a pop star, mm-hmm. do you think you would have been able to, to ride it out or would you have ultimately walked away from it no matter what? Wow, that's so hard to, to you know, think about in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, oh God, if I had become famous at that juncture in my life, I would have been a, an Amy Winehouse, you know? Um, yeah. Because I, when I watched her documentary, I saw what happened to her and how people were manipulating hmm. her and how everyone wanted a piece and they wanted her to do this or that. And yeah. I saw that spiral of how she internalized all of that and became so self-destructive, you know? And I, and I, you know, in a way, my getting out of it kind of saved me from that, that uh, self-destructive spiral, you know? Are you happy with where you are at your, in your career right now? Um, well, yeah, yeah. I'm writing. Yeah. I've really developed my writing muscles and... Um, I'm directing a little bit. I, I'm directing a web series right now. That, You've been doing that for a while, right? No, I just, well, I directed We've a little been, bit yeah, yeah, in the yeah. past, but this is something that I'm very excited about. Okay. It's about a punk girls band. Uh, it's a comedy. Yeah. And we're going to be unveiling it probably before the end of the year. Right. I'm thinking like um, the stains maybe a little in there. Much more outrageous <laughs> okay. than the stains. <laughs> stains, that's a little Bo Peep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> New York seems like a perfectly good place to be a writer. Who who moves to L.A. to be a writer? Um, New York was getting very expensive yeah. when I left. What what year are we talking uh, about? We're talking 93. Okay. And I had... Uh, I'm thinking, I'm like, 93? Things were so cheap back then. <laughs> I was moving out of, of one person's apartment, and I had gotten my own studio apartment in the West Village, and it yep. was $2,000 a month. Okay. That was in 93. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was about as half as big as this room. Yeah. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And I had a lot of friends that had started working in, in the commercial industry in New York. And they said, come on out. You know, you can work. You can write treatments for directors. Mm. You can, there's all you kinds of You were thinking about film at the time. And I was, yeah. yeah. And I really wanted to learn directing and writing for film. And so I, I decided to, to make the move. Was music a natural bridge into filmmaking? A little bit, yeah, because I started uh, writing treatments for um, uh, music video directors. A lot of music yeah. video directors that were very, very popular then in the ni- in the nineties um, were very busy. I mean, they were turning out, you know, yeah. five videos a month sometimes. So um, they would employ ghostwriters to work huh. on the treatments for them. Um, because, you know, like, l- let's say that, uh, you know, at the time, TLC needed a video. <gasps> Did you write um, TLC videos? I'm not going to tell no! you which ones I wrote. <laughs> but, um, you know, they they would bid, like, say, yeah. three or four directors. And each director would, in turn, get the song and have to write up a whole concept and scenario yeah. for the song. So the directors would call me and say, okay, let's work on this together and blah, blah, blah. And they'd throw me the idea and then I'd run with it for them on paper. So, so they, they would come up with the germ of the idea. Mostly, yeah. And sometimes I would extemporate and sometimes they'd like it and sometimes they wouldn't. I'm just, I'm, I'm always, I'm always interested in, you know, particularly, I mean, I, you know, I grew up watching music videos. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always wondering, you know, especially particularly in those videos where they're not a, you know, a very literal interpretation of the song, mm-hmm. where that, where that idea comes from? Mm-hmm. Is it just, is it, is it 
kind of a, is a story built around a general vibe that you're getting with the song? I think that lately artists uh, are more into coming up with their own yeah. concepts. In those days, directors were coming up with the, with wonderful concepts and sometimes working with their writers to, to dream up these, these wild yeah. concepts. I mean, really, I, I think of the 90s as the heyday of, of yeah. music video because I think the most innovative videos were done during the 90s. Um, so usually the, the idea would start with the directors. You did some writing for other artists as well at some point, right? For, uh, uh, weren't you doing oh, some you mean songwriting? songwriting? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 That was happening. Let's see. I think it was in the 1980s. Yeah. I was writing for, well, I wrote, I co-wrote a song with Tom Dolby. I wrote a song for, co-wrote a song for Sheena Easton. Yeah. Pointer Sisters, Arthur Baker, Jellybean Benitez. I, I did a lot diverse. in the dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was kind yeah. of di- diverse. Yeah. And I also have co-written songs with Lydia Lunch. So, that's you know. about as diverse as you could possibly get in that <laughs> yes, time frame. Precisely, yeah. Um, did that seem like the way forward at a, at a certain point, writing for other people? Um, again, I, I, when I left the music business, I really turned my back on the whole yeah. shebang, so to speak. I, I just didn't. I too, there were too many things that went awry that I, I didn't want to yeah. uh, continue. I had somebody on, on the show uh, a, a month or so ago and she's a she's an artist, she's a musician um, in her own right but she also does songwriting for mm-hmm. Beyonce, like all these really big oh, pop stars. Oh, wonderful, yeah, um, yeah. And it's such, a, it's such a, an interesting world and it's something that, you, I mean, you can do, you could have a tremendous career just, just kind of writing songs for these big pop stars. I know, I keep thinking that if I w- were to uh, you know, I'm having this incredible like personality schism where yeah. part of me wants to stay in L.A., but all of my musical partners and people are here yeah. in here in the city, and I, I really feel like if I if I could somehow wrangle, you know, living in both places, that I I would probably get back into songwriting because I I I've been writing so many songs for myself right now, but I also love to write songs for other people. So you're so. you're. You're writing. I mean, you're you're writing. You're just not out performing. Yes, yes. In the secret cave <laughs> back in L.A. with the plan yeah. with the plan of maybe one day doing something with all of these songs. Well, I'm going to be doing something with them on okay. Sunday night. Again, I know it's just it's <laughs> such a funny thing. I just it's just it's so hard for me to think about you know putting all this work into something and and potentially just having it exist for for one night i mean you know i know it seems foolish doesn't it not foolish is it <laughs> foolish isn't the right word but you know obviously this is something like you said this is something that brings mm-hmm. you a lot of joy mm-hmm. it's something that, that that you could do i i don't know if it you know there's gonna be a lot of financial windfall from it but right. at this point in your life do, do you ever just you know i guess why not just go for it well you know uh, one part of me would love that i i you know i do love music and like but but like for instance, doing this gig yeah. takes a lot of admin, a yeah. lot of administration, yeah. a lot of wrangling. Um, I'm probably going to be paying out of pocket hmm. for the gig um, because I don't have any sponsors. I don't have. You're a, paying the musicians. Yeah, I don't have a publishing company. I don't have a uh, a, re- a record deal. I don't have a manager. I don't have a sponsor. So. And the you know the musicians I'm playing with, thank God they're friends of mine yeah. because these are people that. You know they go they go on tour with the biggest names in the world and get paid these outrageous retainers and 
you know, and they're doing this out of love for, for me and, and the music. Um, so to, you know, to sustain that, I wouldn't be able to financially unless somebody comes up to me and says, you know what, this is fantastic and you should be out on the road yeah. and recording. And when that person comes and, you know, says, I'm going to get you a record deal, I'm like, okay, yeah. let's talk, you know. At a certain point, you do have to maybe make the conscious decision to kind of divorce yourself from being too much in the business of music right. Or, right. or whatever whatever art you make, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that you risk when you get into the the back end of something, when you get into to songwriting or if you go work for a record label or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it really it's really easy to strip all of the joy and the romanticism yes. out of something when it turns into a business. Yes. True. True. So, so you're able to, through, you know, maybe through this, through performing every, every once in a while through writing, but just kind of writing for yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. you're able to at least still kind of enjoy it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so exciting because there's, there's absolutely no pressure outside of the admin yeah. and the busy stuff that I have to do. Um, it, it's it's playing music purely for the the joy of it, you know. Like I I have this theory about art in general. It's it, it comes from this uh, poet named uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, and mm-hmm. he wrote this beautiful uh, treatise about something in in southern Spain that they call the duende, and the duende is like this for for artists. It's this little creature that gets in through your emotional wounds and works with you to bring mm. out bring out and so that you won't be afraid to expose those wounds like in your art and i always thought that that was such a beautiful way of yeah. of you know like uh recognizing real art the kind of art that that gives you stendhal syndrome where you're like oh my god you know um, and you, you, you know, you can see that in certain people and, and there are many, many, many others who you cannot see it in. And one of the things that it, I find very disheartening about popular music is with, with the recordings yeah. it, are the way they're processing um, voices in a way that squashes mm-hmm. every dynamic out of it. Yeah. You just slap these compressors. Auto-tune. And, and auto-tune yeah. and all this stuff, and they take out all the emotion mm. and the dynamics of the voice. And, you know, art is about our pain and our joy and, you know, like all of that mush that, you know, we wallow in, you know. That's what, you, that's what moves people. Yeah. If you can expose that in your work, then you're moving people. Then you're making people see the 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 universality of 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 us all. You know, because we all have our own wounds, but those wounds are very similar. I think about this a lot. Um, about when when playing about things like auto tune, and wonder at, at what point do I just start sounding like a grumpy old man who just doesn't get modern music? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I do. I do. I'm concerned. I mean, I I feel the same. Yeah. You know, so my friends and I laugh about it all the time. We're like, "Oh, we're so old, yeah. we're old grandmothers." Because yeah. you know, um, or is it true that music is somewhat le- not emotional these days? I mean, of course, there's great artists. Sure. You know, but I think the majority of what you hear on the radio is kind of sure. But that that's always been the case to some degree, right? I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. it, it it's not the great art that necessarily bubbles to the top right exactly i mean you i mean and, and you've you've been through that firsthand i mean i'm sure that when you look at at what uh 
you know, at what uh, Geffen was pushing that you wouldn't list that as right greatest musical achievement by, by any stretch. Right. right, exactly, exactly. I mean, and that's something I strive for in performance. And, you know, if I were ever to record again, you know, it, it's about the emotion in the songs, yeah. you know. I, I've been listening to a lot of uh, uh, chanson uh, realist music at the French cabaret singers, mm-hmm. and um, there's just so much heart, and it's also very political. They're yeah. talking about the working people. And as we know in this country, there's a huge schism between working class people and sure. people that consider themselves intellectuals, you know. And the and a lot of the working class people that are voting for someone we all fear, <laughs> um, it, you know, it's it's very tragic. And and I think that there's this kind of a cultural conditioning through music and art and what we watch on television although television's getting much better, um, almost like a, a oh, what what, do you, what would you call it, like a social conditioning that happens hmm. through the music that yeah. we, you know, that they want us to hear. Yeah. The, those they people. No, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, you know, the, the, the music that's um, particularly targeted toward them, and, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of a lot of, like, popular country music is probably the best example yes. of things that are targeted toward working class people right particularly right. where you're from yeah. you know in the in, in in the middle of the country and it's really just um it's very buzzword based right mm-hmm. it's it's like let's let's hit, okay trucks mm-hmm. <laughs> you know women beer Cheating. let's yeah, yeah let's get let's get all those in a song and then yeah. yeah yeah but also the pop music there's not you know even barack obama said something interesting it was a few years ago mm. he said why did why isn't anybody writing pol- political music you know Songs like we you had yeah. in the '60s, like Dylan and I've heard Neil Young say the same thing. And, and the truth of the matter is that they are they are, but they're not, not playing it. it on, yeah. yeah, that's the difference. Yeah. We heard it on the radio in the '60s. You won't hear Neil Young's protest songs today, yeah. or Steve Earle, or you know the people that are writing that type of material. Yeah. They're basically blacklisted from the radio. You know those songs because they know the power of music Mm. to move people towards, you know, action for the good, really, you know. When you became a a writer, when you, when you sort of left music, I mean, was there, was there a period when you just, when you couldn't write music, when you couldn't play music for yourself? Very, very long time. Really? Yeah. How long? Very, very long time. Uh, Probably at least a decade. Wow. Yeah. It was a long time. Were you just, when you wouldn't just sit down with a guitar or piano? Yeah. Very rarely. It yeah. was almost like a, a hurt that I, I didn't want to open up, a wound that I had closed over that huh. I didn't want to open up for a long time. And, and you know, I, did, I, I got into it vicariously through being in the music video world, for instance, but I didn't want to go there. Yeah. You know, I still associated it too much. I guess you could say I let the business kind of squash the music in me for a moment it's interesting it's really fascinating the way that happens because you know again as somebody who came up your own way and as somebody Mm -hmm. who was playing you know in in the in the no wave scene who was playing um small clubs early on it it, Mm -hmm. there's this there's this interesting thing that happens that once you pass a certain threshold once you get to a certain level of success that like you don't feel like you could just sort of go back to that for a little while that you know you, you you probably there probably was a while there when you were still in the city when you could have just sort of gone out and mm-hmm. and played smaller shows again sure would yeah. that have felt like a, a failure uh, not necessarily i mean 
I was singing right up until I left New York. Mm -hmm. I, w I was working as a background singer for yeah, a while, yeah, yeah. too, which yeah. was wonderful. Um, yeah, you had some cool gigs. Yeah, it was fun. Tears for Fears. Yeah, I yeah. was on the road with Tears for nine months. Yeah. And, and Debbie was, Harry. Uh, Debbie Harry opened for yeah. us. So I got to sing background vocals for <laughs> her, too, gig, yeah. which was really fun, you know. And uh, and then I sang background vocals for Sophie B. Hawkins for her first oh, wow. tour. Yeah. And then uh, right after that was kind of when I decided, you know, I got to get out of here. <laughs> it, it's an, but that's an interesting transition too, and and you know from from the same, if you look at it from from the same point as far as you know, um, sort of scaling back could potentially be perceived as a failure. I mean, Quinn, did you feel like moving from singing your own songs, being a, a you know having a solo career to being somebody's backup singer? Did that feel like a step down? Well, um, it didn't necessarily. I mean, you know, it was kind of disheartening when when i lost my chrysalis deal yeah um and you know there was something that happened that like i can't really talk about publicly that had to do with uh let's just say that it it <laughs> let's just say that when <laughs> trump did the second debate with hillary okay i was triggered yeah back yeah, to yeah. some memories yeah. of how i was treated in certain instances by men in the music business yeah and the chrysalis thing, something happened where, you know, I, I, I was dropped. Let's just put it hmm. that way. And it had nothing to do with me. Yeah. Uh, it had to do with somebody else's. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, obviously you're, you're, you're speaking abstractly. Now that you've said that, I can completely understand just not yeah, wanting to be yeah. in music at all at that point. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was, it, let's just say a lot of women were triggered by that second debate yeah. because there was that physicality of Trump kind of stalking Hillary physically around yeah, yeah, the stage. Yeah, yeah. And it was very triggering for, you know, yeah. for so many women. I think millions of women came out to talk about experiences they'd had. When did the chrysalis thing happen? Um, versus, you know, was That was between your solo solo and, and doing the backup? Uh, well, yeah. I okay. had an album come, come out in 1988 that they wouldn't promote. They dropped me right when the record came out. Yeah. And uh, I'm not, I didn't think it was my best effort, that's for sure. But again, um, there was a lot that happened with the record company. Like I was working with uh, the guys from Scritti Politi in England, and yeah. I absolutely loved working with them. Problem is, they take a long time in the studio, and it was getting very, very expensive. So we ended up uh, coming back to New York and doing the record here mm -hmm. in in the city but um so when i when i left that the the woman that was working as the uh head of publicity at, at chrysalis uh was married to kurt from tears for Fur mm. fears and she said hey listen and she was very sympathetic about yeah. me being dropped she said do you want to come out on the road with tears you should audition because they're looking for singers and i was like sounds pretty good to me yeah. you know so um there's something to be said to, you know, to do backing vocals on yeah. a huge tour like that because you don't have the responsibility sure. of having to go out front and, you know, deal with the with with all all of the uh, uh, the accoutrement that goes with being, you know, the front person. You can just enjoy the music, and and you know, it was beautiful. I mean, we were playing for sometimes, yeah. you know, I think there were, were as many as twenty thousand people. 
at these stadiums in Brazil and Sao Paulo, and you know, it's just fantastic. It it's a great. world. It's a world I don't know. I I don't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. The the backup musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume it helps when you're working for a band like that, or when you're working, you know, with with Debbie Harry, and it's like good music. Yes, <laughs> it's yes, probably really a big part of it. Fun. What is a night like for a backup singer? Well, you know, it's just. Uh, it's it's really exciting. Like you're kind of like a family when you're yeah. traveling, especially for that long of a time. You really get to know each other. And... There's no like, don't talk to the band. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> well, like <laughs> like you guys over here, like don't please please don't don't socialize with the band. Oh, you mean the backing singers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, no, 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 no. <laughs> I feel like it's probably the case on some tours. You yeah. Know, well, just maybe like, it is. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it wasn't on our tour. We were all very, you know, we we had fun together. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was pure pure excitement, you know. I mean, it does wear on you sure. after a while because you're staying in hotels and a lot of the time you're traveling on buses and um, it can get exhausting at moments when you're doing like five, six gigs a week, you know, um, all that traveling. Yeah. But, um, you know, you're, you're, ta- you're well taken care of. I mean, on a tour like that, five-star hotels and, you know, it's pretty, pretty cushy, so... That would have seemed like a good time for you to have just sort of severed completely, you know, having gone through what you went through. Mm-hmm. Um, you were still thinking about staying in music at that point? Um, I was on the fence. I, w- I was enjoying the tour. I was, yeah. ma- you know, I, it was basically going from being dropped by, by my record company to going to full-time employment, yeah. which was lovely at that juncture you know um and and uh when you're on the road you don't have time to think about writing songs and and then i went straight from the tears for fears tour into the sophie b hawkins tour so it was kind of one thing after another and and then when the sophie tour ended um i just felt la was calling me and i i wanted to i just wanted i didn't want to i didn't want the pressure of having to start all over again, write another body of material. Yeah. Look for a manager, look for a record deal, look for a publishing deal. Even though like you said it it, it wasn't your your best album. I mean mm-hmm. to, to to have spent all that much time on that much time on something and to mm-hmm. just have it to like to realize how ethereal these things can possibly be. Oh yeah. Again, even if you weren't as committed to it as, as other things, I mean mm-hmm. it's gotta be completely heartbreaking. Oh right? my God. Well the with the record I did with Scritti Politti, which I absolutely love. It's yeah. called When It's Over. It was never released. You can't get it. Hmm. I mean, you can't find it anywhere. It was never released. Yeah. And, it, and that had something to do with some business thing about the guys, because two of the guys are American, working in England without visas or something. There was some legality that the uh, record company failed to cover, yeah. which meant they couldn't release the record. So, I mean, these are the types of things that kept happening, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was just a shame. But but actually, I am doing a song from that album on stage mm-hmm. Sunday night. You must think about this every so often when you're writing or, or, or prepping a show that, um, again, like you said, there certainly the... Um, the opportunity to make money isn't as really available as it was before, but the but technology has shifted things to such a point where um, you, you could, if you if you know if you invested yourself in it, you could you could get your stuff out there and you could start building up that following. I mean, are you 
Is it just that at this point you don't want to like have to rebuild everything? Well, it, you know, I'm not adverse to the idea. Yeah. If I had a great manager who yeah. wanted to help me and yeah. thought that there was a possibility at my age that, you know, that I that something could happen, I would probably do it, you know. But it really has to do, I mean, you cannot do this alone. It's yeah. just, and I'm a solo artist, um, and I, I would really, really need the help and someone to believe in me enough to to put the work in, you know. So the, the all the connections that you've uh, you've you've built up over the years, you know, you, you mentioned Thomas Dolby. I think you were mm-hmm. working with Brian Eno at some point. Oh, or? way back, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I I, um, was, uh, I opened uh, I assisted Brian for a little bit. With the artists that you're performing with on on Sunday, uh, there, there isn't sort of a, a network out there. There isn't a, a group of musicians that you know you can really that can well, help you jumpstart. Well, the musicians are here yeah. for me, but I live in L.A. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I probably could do a gig now and again with these musicians, but, again, if you don't have tour support mm-hmm. and you don't have a manager, it's really difficult. I mean, just to, to book a gig yourself as an artist, you know, most, most venues don't want to talk to the artist. They want to talk to the artist's manager. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you don't have a manager, you usually get a pretty bum deal as well. So, you know, there's all, there's all these types of things. And um, I think there was a moment where I did approach a couple of managers. But I'm as I said, there's, you know, ageism does exist in yeah. this business. Yeah. And people really, you know, they don't take kindly to people that are my age especially when you talk like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you moved to new york to play music professionally uh i did well mm, again yeah this is the tricky thing because in no way of music we were the antithesis of success in career sure. you know it sure. was all about uh smashing uh you know the system mm-hmm. and anarchy and and you know rip basically uh dismembering music as we know it, yeah. you know? So uh, I didn't come here specifically to be a star, hmm. but I did come here to play music and to shake things up. You moved out here knowing about the no-wave scene or knowing about that sort of post-punk yeah, era? Well, um, it kind of coincided with my moving here. I mean, I moved into New York because of people like Patti Smith mm-hmm. and television. Sure. Um, who were my my ultimate heroes? Yeah. Um, because they just created such a new, yeah, uh, you know, a poetics of sound that no one had ever heard before. But and Patty Smith certainly wasn't averse to you know getting signed to a well, record yeah. label. Yeah. You know yeah. they they might have been a little more traditional. I mean punk punk of that era might have been a little more traditional than than what you guys were doing yeah, later I th- on. I think what we were doing was a little. Well, when yeah, you're rebelling crazier. against punk, we're, there's so, we were. We're, yeah. <laughs> In fact, actually, we were. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because in the contortions, James knew how to play the sax, right? Yeah. He, he was a very well-versed jazz yeah. sax player, but more in the kind of Albert Ayler school, mm-hmm. uh, the scronky kind yeah. of school. And um like, I had never played keyboards before. Pat Place had never played guitar before. He liked the way we looked. You look like a keyboard player? Yeah, and just kind of said, oh, you know, I like your look. Let's, why don't you play in my band? So it, it all kind of happened um, 
organically where we were all, you know, in this loft, and he was teaching us initially to how to play these polyrhythms against mm-hmm. each other. So he had me, you know, bashing the keyboards yeah. like like I was playing congas, like I was playing a, a percussion you know, percussion instrument. Yeah. And I later found out through Stanley Crouch, the jazz uh, critic, that I was playing clusters, which is what Sun Ra was known for. Huh. And I had no idea huh. who Sun Ra was when Stanley Crouch approached me and said, hey, yeah, you've been listening to Sun Ra. I'm like, who? <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we were very much the antithesis of, yeah. of, you know, it was, J- James had this, this ingenious way of, of taking jazz and just breaking it down and, and he, we, we were also listening to people like Fela Kuti, um, you know, Nigerian music. Afrobeat, yeah. Yeah, Afrobeat and, um, and I think one of the most interesting parts of that scene was the fact that women were picking up instruments and playing those instruments in ways that men had never played them Mm. before. They were creating, like if there were people like Lydia Lunch, she's the first one that played slide guitar, like that Mm. crazy, you know, that that out out jazzy, weird punk thing. And Pat Plays kind of, you know, took her cue from Lydia, but then made it her own. And then there were people like Lizzie Mercier from Paris who played these weird African polyrhythms on the guitar. It was like, oh, my God, you know, pe- these women were picking up instruments. Ikwe Mori yeah. from uh, DNA was playing the drums in ways that, you know, were so non-traditional when it came to rock or punk. So it, that was a very important uh, aspect of that scene. And I think because women were being so innovative that it gave the men like a freer freer avenue to, to go nuts as well you know so so and and there it things there was a lot of gender fluidity then yeah um gender neutrality i think which which must have, must have made made it even harder running up against that wall when you got signed against a label and they told you not to yeah. talk about your sexuality yeah <laughs> when the boys are dressed like girls and the girls are dressed like boys and then all of a sudden like, yeah and then all of a sudden you know that. it's major label yeah. and you know yeah yeah where where were you I mean, obviously obviously you could sing um when you moved out here to mm-hmm. to be a musician mm-hmm. so you didn't play the keyboards did you play an instrument no i never okay. i played a little bit of guitar just enough yeah. to play basic you know but you you thought based on your ability to sing that, that you would be able to find something out here mm, not really because <laughs> because that music was not my type of voice yeah you didn't want to sing in yeah. in the no wave scene. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, looked down upon if you actually had a good voice. So, which is one of the reasons why yeah. I was a keyboard player. But when I left Contortions, I started to sing. But the but the plan were you thinking of yourself when when you know, when you leave home, when you move out to the to the city, were you thinking mm-hmm. about yourself as a performance artist? Was that the uh, idea? Uh, no, I I always thought of myself as a singer. I yeah. did. But I, be, but because of what was happening in New York, I I felt like once again I couldn't be authentic as yeah. a singer because the scene that I was involved in was was not about anything resembling tradition, you know, when it comes to punk, rock, whatever, in any way whatsoever. 
So I kind of had to put that on hold for a moment. I like this know? idea that you have sort of a secret weapon that you, you can't you can't <laughs> quite you can't quite break out right now. Right, right. So, so, yeah. so you were, I mean, you know, you were hearing you're hearing the music like certainly the bigger acts like television and mm-hmm. Patti Smith were, mm-hmm. were were filtering through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how much of that? You know, it's it's sort of it's like so hard for me to kind of remember back to kind of contextualize this pre this way pre internet era. Um, uh, uh, how were you getting these things, and how were you hearing about what was happening in in New York where you were? Well, funny enough, there um, there was a radio station in in it, I think it's still going in Cleveland called WMMS, and there was a DJ on WMMS named Kid Leo, and Leo would play television and he would play he played patty smith's horses record and i'll never forget the first time i heard it it was very late at night and i heard you know jesus died for somebody's in that raspy voice of hers and i i totally lost my mind i thought oh my god who is this and then uh, shortly after that i met peter lochner who was infamous in cleveland for being uh, a bit of a bad guy Mm -hmm but also a guitar hero. And um, he started Parubu yeah. with a couple of guys, yeah. uh, Crocus and Tim Wright, um, started Rocket from the Tomb. Yeah. So he was very yeah. so instrumental. Yeah, did have that, you know. And yeah, and he would go... A little he, bit of the Ann Arbor scene, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had, um, you know, Destroy All Monsters was coming to yeah. play. And and um, we didn't... The Stooges, I don't think they played Cleveland at the time. No, no. But we knew of them. Yeah, yeah. and and it, you know, it's not like you were so much in the boondocks that you know, no, you didn't, no, the, no, the no. weirdos were still there. Exactly. And Peter, Peter yeah. came to New York quite often, so he would bring stuff, you know, bring yeah. tapes back. Um, yeah. And then when P- I was in a band with Peter right before he passed away, and it had always been our plan to move to New York anyway. Okay. So when he left, uh, when he left the earth, it was time for me to leave. Yeah. Island, you know. Yeah, I was, you know, I was, t- I was talking to somebody about this, about this recently, of that sort of like, that moment when you feel like you've kind of, that you found your tribe, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. that sort of, that that epiphany that, that you didn't know there was something out there. Mm-hmm. Well, you knew there was something out there, but you didn't know what it, I'm sorry, I'm like almost quoting Bob Dylan, but <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, you didn't know what it was, but then when yeah. you heard it, it was, it was pretty clear. Well, yeah, because uh, again, that there were so many aspects of the people I was meeting that were just drew me in, yeah. you know, the, the gender neutrality, the, the, uh, anything goes, uh, sonically and musically, yeah. the, um, the, you know, the ideas of mixing theater, you know, with music. And, um, w- one of the things that would really attract crowds with the contortions is that we would play these very sharp bursts of songs that were just, hellacious you know mm-hmm. sonically and and james was very theatrical and i don't know if he had heard about iggy doing kind of self lacerations <laughs> in with the stooges in detroit yeah. but he would he would find the most attractive girl in the front of the stage oh, in the no. audience leap into the audience and start making out with her the boyfriend would would of course <laughs> yank James yeah. off and and start pummeling him and there would be you know this these fisticuffs going on in yeah. front of the stage and George the bass player George Scott and I would leap off the stage into the melee in front of the stage so there'd be like a brawl going on we'd all be like 
you know, punching the guy for attacking James, and the rest of the band will be playing this, like, incredibly furious rhythm, you know, at, at breakneck speed on stage, and everybody will just go bananas watching this extraordinary, you know, thing that was I want to point out the fact that for, for those listening to the audio that you're about five foot nothing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean that must have been a that must have been a, a sight at the time. Yeah. Are you are you five are you five? I'm five foot nothing. Yeah. Five. Yeah. <laughs> like you. I mean, did you feel like did you feel like you had something to prove? Well, kind of. I had like you know a chip on my shoulder yeah. about as big as Avenue A in yeah. those days. But um, yeah. I you know I I loved to brawl in those yeah. days. It, it's you know I had funny. a lot of anger. Yeah. <laughs> How how old were you when you moved to New York? I was uh, I, actually I was twenty two. Twenty two, okay. Twenty two, okay. yeah. And and you knew you were gay at the time. I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Was that was that a part of why you wanted to move to the city? Uh, not really. Yeah. Not really, because I, again, when I got to New York, uh, even though I think essentially I identify as a gay woman, um, you know, there was the gender neutrality just. People didn't think about yeah. gay, straight, cisgender, you know, he, she, they. It was really kind of whoever you were attracted to, yeah. you you know. But, that, I mean, that must have been freeing it to move to. It was very freeing. I mean, the fact that, that we didn't have any strictures or, mm. you know, sometimes, and, and, and I think it's very important for LGBTQ people now to have, you know, to to define if they need to define this or to way. feel like they belong or, or to yeah. feel yes yeah. but um at that time it would have felt like garments that we couldn't fit yeah. into you know here's garment a b and c and you have to fit into these specific things and none of that existed then so if you wanted to sleep with a boy or a girl it didn't really matter yeah. and people didn't you know they didn't really identify it was just neutral was that the case where you, where you were from? Were you? No. Okay. Cleveland was a very very misogynistic yeah. scene for for women in music sure. and in art. Yeah. The guys, most of the guys in Cleveland, there were a couple of exceptions in the music scene. Peter being the main one because he really fostered uh, female musicians and and you know loved playing with female musicians. And there were a couple of others, but for the most part, you know, it was really looked down upon. You know, like women can't play rock and yeah. roll. They don't have any balls. No, people, guys would say that to me. You know, it's just insane. <laughs> it's literally, that's literally accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But there must have been, you know, yeah. and and you were you were clearly, in a sense, kind of embracing this. I mean, they're they're in a, in a way. Most don't want to say this. Cause I don't know if it like if it's almost condescending, oh, come on, but say it. well, no, but just that, like, <laughs> you know, there's like. In a weird way, there's kind of something empowering in the idea of like us versus them. That like, you know, this idea of sort of I was, uh, I, I was interviewing somebody the, the other day, and she was talking about um, she's from New York. She's 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 a, a cartoonist, a mm-hmm. graphic novelist, and she moved she moved down to uh, Savannah. And mm-hmm. I was and I I like jokingly compared uh, it to uh, Straw Dogs. You remember Straw Dogs? Yeah, the Dustin... Sam Peckinpah movie, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, with where Hoffman. like he moves to like sure. the small town. I, I think it was like in Ireland, and they're like breaking into the. But <laughs> but but in a way, like you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's something kind of you know empowering in, in of being kind of that small, that small group of weirdos, mm-hmm. you know, surrounded mm-hmm. by people who think differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting, though, because the Lower East Side and the East Village in those days, yeah. there were about 200 of us, roughly. Yeah. And we all kind of knew, knew each, each other. other yeah. And we were all in, in the arts. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I guess you could say we were kind of like a big gang of, yeah. you know, renegade anarchists in a way, you know? Was, uh... So what what year what year did you move out here? I moved seventy seven. Seventy seven. Son of Sam year. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. That, uh, Summer blackout. of the blackout. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, New York then. Where so was? Much. So so you know after um, you know falling in love with television and and Patty Smith and where what what state was all of that in when you got here what state was the that sort of early that cbgb scene patty already had her record deal yeah. television was signed a lot of those she fans was already were, doing the bruce springsteen thing well <laughs> i don't think she was doing bruce yet but uh they were they were all yeah. um you know all the bands were signing to sire and um mars suicide was playing and i think suicide were the yeah, granddaddies of yeah, yeah, yeah. What ha- no wave, yeah, really, because really what, early electronic too. Yeah, yeah. Mar- what Marty Rev was doing on yeah. synthesizers, no one had ever done before. Yeah, and um, I, I, I always think of it as um, again, here I go with my ridiculously um, literary references, but. <laughs> Antonin Artaud wrote this book called The Theater of Cruelty. And okay, in you lost it, me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and in it, he kind of prophesied that there would be these electric instruments that yeah. would create disturbances. And, you know, and he wrote about it in such a, uh, an eloquent way. But what Marty and, and Alan were doing with suicide, to me, was theater, the theater of cruelty. Because yeah. it was this sonic assault but at the same time, it was very seductive, and yeah. it was, you know, like, oh, God, which he had Frankie Teardrop. Yeah. I mean, that song, if you listen to yeah, that song. that's I a mean, rough song. And and when Alan and Marty would play, yeah. the, the you know, it would be turned up to 11 on, yeah. on, on the uh, volume, and, and, and Alan would stand there very, very still, you know. It was complete stasis with this thrumming synthesizer. And he and suddenly, he'd stare out at the audience, just still, still, still. He'd take the microphone stand, bang it on the ground, and start to, like, literally look like he was going to attack the audience. He never actually attacked yeah. them, but totally menacing, totally menacing. Because and that um, song, that song, it's it's it starts off really quiet and just builds and, and builds, builds and builds, and builds for yeah. It's what's like a fifteen minute song, oh, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, he would he would just uh, fluctuate between this total yeah. stasis and this this attack mode that was yeah. just incredibly dynamic. It was really fun to watch. When did you, I mean? It sounds like for you, the 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 theatrical element was part of it. Yeah, all along. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, Lydia Lunch too. Yeah, I mean. I, I remember seeing Lydia's Teenage Jesus and the Jerks when I first yeah, yeah, yeah. moved here. And uh, she was doing this song, and it was her, Bradley Field, just playing this militaristic dot, dot, dot. And she was playing her crazy slide guitar, and the song was Little Orphans Running Through the Bloody s- bloody Snow. Yeah. <laughs> Little Orphans Running Through the Bloody Snow. And I thought, oh, my God, that's just kind of like who we all are, these, like, these kids yeah. that that came from some of us came from broken homes 
Some of us came from art schools, but it was this disparate, seemingly disparate group of people um, that came together. That it, it was almost like Pasolini's Ragazzi or something. You know, it was just it was very yeah. magical, very magical. It's like the yeah. Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, just that that kind of like. Uh, exercising your demons through through the music and and people relating to that you know kind of relating to it and also feeling that catharsis hmm. as they were listening and watching this you know? i i guess one of the things that's sort of hard for me to contextualize and, and and part of this is because you know i moved here i mean it's a long time ago now but i moved here in 2003 mm-hmm. um you know and and the idea of moving to the city without a plan at this point is kind of crazy, right? Mm, it sure is. Yeah. Um, but you, it's from the sound of it, you never had any doubt that you would, or, or you never had any, you didn't have that sort of that fear of, of getting up in front of people. You just sort of, sounds like you just kind of just went and you, you moved here and you, 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 you found your people and, started performing pretty quickly yeah yeah yeah. and also you know that was a time when artists could come to the city and get an apartment for fifty dollars a month you know so you didn't really have to work yeah you could and you also made more money the venues paid more money than for bands um so if you if you got a good crowd in you would get paid fairly well and and because everything the city was bankrupt yeah so rent was really cheap. Food was really cheap. You could live very comfortably on very little money and devote all of your time to, your, you know, making music, making art, theater, films, whatever. I mean, now I, I, I feel so bad for young people who, you know, aspire to, to do anything artistic that's not corporate because, I mean, you have, when you, if you, if you were to move here today and you're, 20 21 22 you have to unless you're a you know unless you have uh parents very wealthy parents who will pay your bills you're living five people to an apartment i hear you know um and working a corporate job just to pay your rent at when 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 you moved here when you were at at 22 was there was there a backup plan no no (laughs) no No, just just dive in yeah did you did you did you wait tables or I actually worked at bookstores. I okay. worked at the Strand oh, yeah. for a long time yeah. and that was kind of the go to place yeah, for yeah. artists for from all the Detroit worked. and Cleveland. And, <laughs> yeah, it's where all the There was like were. a there was like an upper Midwest like triangle or something, like an exchange program. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. A lot of people from the Midwest yeah. uh, ended up at the Strand and then there was a bookstore on uh Spring Street that I worked at worked at for many years. Well, not many years, I think two years yeah. perhaps. Yeah. So what, um, what, what writing-wise, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on this uh, web series. Oh, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm writing music for the band that I put together for the web series, which is really fun. That's really – so you're, you're basically kind of building a little world. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like a every... spinal tap type of thing. Okay, you know, a little female. like mockumentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really fun. Um, so, you, I mean, you were able to f- sort of find – I mean, you're doing it on 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 the internet, so you were able to find an outlet. Yes, recently, yes. Yeah. And this is the the great thing about starting off as a web series because 
you have the freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah. Again, you don't have anyone telling you uh, from you know a cable network or whomever that you can't do this, you can't do that. Yeah. So if you build your show and you build an audience and the material is actually good, yeah. you can eventually get picked up by you know uh, Netflix or whatever, and you've already built your 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 show, your style, so they can't really mess yeah. it up too much because you're going to them with a built-in audience, you know. Is it uh, semi-autobiographical? Mm, not really, yeah. although I, I must say that my the lead singer, she's my muse. She, she yeah, I think she has a little bit of me in her. It, it's <laughs> the character. Is it contemporary? Is. Um, yes. Okay, so yes. you had to... Uh... Well, well, basically, it's about a, a band of girls that uh, consider this, themselves punk, but the lead singer has a grandmother who was in the no wave scene. God, grandmother, granny. <laughs> she has a she has a yeah. coke snorting granny. Who's yeah. a riot, and um, so the band is very enamored of all these things that we're talking about. Yeah, through the grandmother and through, and it's a way for me to actually work in guest appearances by all the great women i know in music that's great you know, like lydia yeah um maybe kim gordon you know get get some guest people in there so 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 right now you consider yourself a writer above above all that's your main um outlet. that's my yeah that's my main yeah my main thrust right now is okay. writing and creating and and songwriting too because yeah. you know one of the most exciting things about doing this web series is it also it's kind of responsible for me doing this gig because mm. it brought me back to music yeah. and the joy of, of, of that and working with musicians and, the, you know, it's so joyful. You have three three distinct things that you do and you're finally, you finally found an outlet where you can do them. Yes. You can do them all. Exactly. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's hilarious and awesome that you, you cut your teeth as a director on, on Playboy. Oh yes. You know that. Uh -oh. <laughs> I did. You know, it's all, uh -oh. that's the, the, the good and the bad of the internet is, it, is, is it's all right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of, I mean. The way I got involved with Playboy it was a, it was very very sneaky way. Yeah, they wanted to. Uh, there was a there was a producer, a female producer, who wanted to do a, a a show of erotica from a women's point of view, and Playboy wanted to produce it. Huh. So she got twelve uh, female directors and writers in a room together to pitch these stories of you know erotic stories, and um, Playboy went for it. And we did this thing called Women's Stories of Passion. But as soon as we started to direct the episodes, Playboy stepped in and said, okay, you can't show men's this, you can't show men's that, you can't, mm -hmm. you know. So, again, it was all about the male gaze. They wanted just, yeah. you know, they wanted yeah. full frontal on the women, but, you know, showing a guy's posterior was like. They wanted erotica for women from the male point of view. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Erotica for women by women from a male point point of view. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. But uh, and and basically, I figured out why we figured out why is that I guess men don't want to watch erotica together if they're not homos because if if there's if they're watching a guy's you know butt yeah uh, or other things. That, sure. you know, they don't want their friends to think that they're aroused by that. So that was the, the reasoning behind this craziness. But know? that was a good 
that was a good spot for you to learn? Uh, it was a great yeah. spot to learn the ropes. I had done a little teaser for a film that I wanted, that I had written that I wanted to direct, but it was a gay film and I couldn't get financing for yeah. it in 95. Um, so this came up. She saw, you know, the trailer that I had put together. And so I was hired and then really learned how to, how to direct mm -hmm. via that show. And then Playboy asked me to do a, a feature for them. And I did kind of like a Midsummer Night sex comedy type feature for them, which w really taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, for like, I think it was, our budget was like 350 grand or something. But the film did very, very well for them. So that was good. But, um, yeah, and then I just started started writing primarily. Let the directing go for a little bit because yeah. you know people don't take Playboy seriously. You know, I mean, I think that someone really important, like the director of The Godfather or something, Coppola. Coppola directed for Playboy very, very really? early in his career, but he's a guy, so it's okay. Yeah, but also that just doesn't. <laughs> I mean, that 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 kind of pornography doesn't really exist much anymore because right. of the internet, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and Playboy's trying to get into other types of content now, too. Yeah. They're branching out. So, But it, but it, but it's nice, you know, it, it's, it's good that you haven't had to rely on one thing, that, you know, you've been able to flex these different muscles over the years, you know, and, and when, when something comes up, you'll be more than happy to, to jump on it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't get bored. Yeah. Let's put it that way. There you go. That was Adele Bertai. Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time to do that. You, you know it's a really interesting conversation with a very interesting person when you've been talking for about an hour or so, and then, then finally you get to the part where uh, she made films for Playboy. Uh, just a, a completely fascinating career. Really, really enjoyed that talk, and a lot of interesting insights into musical scenes that you know, I'd, I'd mostly kind of known about in passing you know no way the, the, the cleveland scene at the time things like that she just bridges so many fascinating different worlds thank you so much to her for taking the time to do that you can check out uh, more of her stuff at her website adelbertai.com that is the uh, best place to get all of her latest goings on uh, also right after that conversation i went to go see her perform at uh, la poisson rouge with uh, esther ballant and her uh, other former guest of the show and oh my god I I really I hope for I hope for everybody's benefit out there that she does more live performance because, because she, she was just just completely dynamite you know she's I know she doesn't play in front of people very often and you know I know that La Pulse Rouge is a relatively small venue but god, oh my god she brought it so hard at that show really really enjoyed it so if you if you ever go to her site and and if you find out that she's playing in her area definitely go see her uh thanks to howard for setting that up thanks to you guys as always for listening to the show my voice is back which is a good sign i i when you go to something like ces and you are sick like three different kinds of sick for three weeks you kind of get to that point where you just assume that you're never getting better but uh, my voice is back i i am back the show is back not that we not that we actually went anywhere but uh Anyway, thanks to you guys. Thanks to uh, the fact that I have health insurance. Uh, if you enjoy the show, if you 
if you want me to, I guess if you want me to uh, uh, continue to live and produce the show, then uh, consider consider supporting us over on uh, over on Patreon. If you don't have any money to send our way, you can read us over at iTunes. Uh, that that will help us out a lot when we go around and, and tell people about the show, try to get future guests. Uh, that's it's really nice when we can show them all the the awesome reviews that we have over on iTunes. Uh, lots and lots of good shows lined up. I'm very excited to bring you the next couple weeks worth of shows that we have in the can if you want to be the first person to get our show if you want to be among the first you can do that at riylcast.tumblr.com if you've got any feedback it's riylcast at gmail.com and uh, like us on facebook i think that's about all i got for this week so uh thanks again to everybody for listening thanks to dell for uh for doing the show uh i had a really really great time and we will catch you just just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L.